0: turn our attention to God's Word, and I'm going to invite, uh, we have uh, three people reading Scripture today because, yes, we're reading a lot. So, I apologize. We're going to read the book of Leviticus this morning. Not the whole thing, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it's up on the screen behind you as well as in your worship folder. Please follow along.
1: Do I have two other readers up here? I don't want to do this alone. All right. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Uh, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it in, into pieces and the sons of Aaron, the priests. Uh, the priest shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Uh, And the sons of Aaron, and Aaron's sons, sorry, the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs um, he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, From the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. As uh, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall never sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord.
2: When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn it, shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is as a, it is a grain offering, and the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord.
1: If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys then aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering which is on the wood on the fire it is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the lord the word of the lord
0: thanks be to god would you join me in prayer father would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, I apologize. Some of the verses didn't appear on the screen, but they're right in your worship folder if you want to follow along with that as I go through this. Um, So last week, uh, we're continuing our our study in the book of Leviticus. And last week, we looked at all this glorious and beautiful art. We, We talked a lot about the the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle to be re- replaced with the, the temple. And the, the tabernacle was this place of glory, and everything about it was made to be beautiful, was made to reflect God's beauty. And by contrast, today's passages, uh, these these first couple of chapters from the book of Leviticus may feel anything but beautiful to you. They may feel confusing and grotesque. Um, it's This, what we read today, sounds like slaughterhouse terminology. And if you pay attention closely to the sacrificial system, you're right if you feel that. I mean, can you imagine uh, the scene from the dedication of the temple being recreated today? So after Solomon built the temple, which replaced the tabernacle, we're told that there was an enormous amount of sacrifice, 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep, uh, if you can imagine a, a modern church service where we'd have had anything close to that, with a, a pastor with a knife, cutting animals' throats, pulling out entrails and livers, the smell of burning flesh. I mean, this is, to modern sensibilities, as horrific and grotesque as we can imagine. And, and so a lot of people really stumble over this. Uh, for example, the atheist writer Richard Dawkins writes this about the God of the Old Testament. Um, he says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. His words, not mine. Um, Jealous, proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, and vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pest, pest- I can't even read that word. Pustential uh, megalomaniacal, mania, maniacal mania. You got, it, you got it. Sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I mean, wow. Um, and there are a lot of people, Christian writers and Christian thinkers, who have struggled reading this. One writer says of these first chapters of Leviticus, when you read through Leviticus, it's kind of like a B-grade slasher movie, but without a plot, just lots of blood. And so, today we're going to look at the sacrificial system, because there has to be mo- more going on here than just uh, gore with no plot. There has to be meaning here, and there, there's a lot to be found. There's a lot to be found in this, and I, I want to invite you into what is probably really foreign material for modern church people, and yet is there's a lot of gospel grace to be found in these passages. So, Uh, I want to start by looking at the context. The context. Uh, There are a whole range of biblical scholars and critics who look at the Old Testament sacrificial system and are just like, whew, I'm glad we're past that. Nothing to see here. Please move on. Uh, There's nothing to learn from this. There's a lot to skip and not to, to, to learn from this. But I think it's really helpful for us to think about this and think about it within the context of what happens in the larger ancient Near East. The Israelite people were not the only people who made sacrifices. This was a practice that many nations all around Israel had. And so studying those can tell us something about what Israel was doing and why. So I want you to think about this. Uh, It's important for us to think about the other nations around this and what was going on. So there are two kind of theories about why people, this is sociologically speaking, started sacrificing. And the first one was um, simply this, divine food. And and the way that this, this idea goes is like, okay, the gods, whatever they were, were kind of like larger than life people and like us need to be fed on a regular basis. Picture Uh, Larger than life Marvel characters, right, Uh, and who are in charge of very various aspects of of life in the world, and need to be fed in order to do what it is that they do. And so, um, you please them, you please the gods by feeding them. You please them by by doing this. And nothing in the Bible particularly hints that that is at all what's behind any of what we read this morning. That the Bible doesn't picture a god who is ever in need who's ever hungry or tired or cranky or who's like, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm without, I have lacks. So that's, that's clearly not in view here. The, the second kind of theory about how sacrificial systems came to be in all these different nations is this, the idea of pleasing the forces of nature. And, and it goes like this. Uh, at a certain point in human history, people began to wake up to the reality that in a farming system, They were heavily dependent on the forces of nature in the right amounts. So, for example, if you realize that you need rain, but not too much rain, right? We know about too much rain. Or not too little rain, like a drought. You need sun, but not too much sun that burns your crops. Or not too little. You need the Goldilocks zone for both of those. Then the early gods in lots of cultures are these, the rain god and the sun god. And so you can't control the amount of rain. You can't control the amount of sun. So you try to do things to keep the, god, the forces behind nature to be happy with you. So this, this, is, um, this is how the, this goes. And, and over time, people began to, to make sacrifices of their crops to please the gods so that they would continue to provide good things. So it goes like this. Anytime's a good crop, I'm not going to eat all of it. I'm not going to use all of it. Some of it I will lay aside for the forces, right, for, for the gods, whoever they may be. This is sort of broad picture sociological study of ancient Near Eastern culture. This is what they were doing. But here's the glitch in the software. My kids play video games, and they always talk about the glitch. You know about glitching? Okay. So the glitch in the software is this. Um, what what happens if you offer the rain god an offering, and there's still a drought? What happens then? Maybe you'll say, "Okay, I didn't offer enough." Okay, so now I need to offer um, more. But but let's say well, let's try this another way. Let's say it rained enough and just enough, and you have an abundance of crops. Then you you're like, "Well, okay, now I need to offer." I, I probably in my gratitude should offer the rain god more. And here's what happened. Over time, whether it was we didn't offer enough and therefore we need to offer more, or things turned out great and I need to express my thanks and offer more, the system created this kind of anxiety. There's always more that needs to be offered. Whether things worked out well, or things worked out poorly, it always feels like, I don't know where I stand with this God, and I don't know how much is enough. And so, the psychology, of the system is this feeling that somebody somewhere needs to be pleased with me. I need to make sure that this God is pleased with me, and I need to offer more. So, if your animals get sick, if a woman can't get pregnant, if a child dies in childbirth, you would always be wondering, what do I need to do to get the forces on my side? What do I need to do to get the gods to be happy with me? And I'm talking about this as if this is ancient religion, but we all know it's not. Right? There's there's a version of this that is in the subtext of a lot of the Bible Belt. And there's a lot of anxiety in people's religion much of the time. Is God mad at me? Have I done enough? There's a lot of that sometimes behind the serving and the giving of lots of good people. Have I done enough? Is God somehow mad with me? If you look at the bestseller list among the kind of like self-help and especially the like religion section, a lot of them operate on the anxiety principle. Have I done enough? So let's let's just trace this to its logical conclusions in the ancient Near East. If the drought continues, let's say the drought continues, um, you can see where this begins to go because you've offered the grain and you've offered as much grain as you can really afford and still eat and have seed for next year. So you begin to say, okay, what can I offer that's more valuable? Well, uh, I'll offer an animal and I'll kill an animal for the forces and make sure the forces are happy. Well, drought continues. And you're like, okay, I need to offer a more valuable animal. Okay. Drought continues. What do you do? And you can see where this goes, can't you? Can you feel where this is headed? Because this is, this is where this is headed. It's what's creeping sort of at the dark edges around a lot of the nations surrounding Israel in the Old Testament. What do you offer next? A child. You offer a child. And, you know, the, the god Molech, one of the, the gods of the nations surrounding Israel, that, this is what the practice was. And this is why, I mean, just kind of interesting side note, when Abraham is told by God, offer your firstborn, he's not like, no way, I've never heard of that before. He doesn't need instruction. He knows that's what the surrounding nations do, and so he knows exactly what's being asked of him in that moment. That's a different sermon. But this is why I want to show you, this is the context for Leviticus, This is the context for these opening chapters. And it's filled with with anxiety and where do I stand and have I done enough? And this is why, here's the punch. This is why I want to say to you, Leviticus, by contrast, is so revolutionary. That's a phrase you haven't heard someone say before. (laughs) Leviticus, by contrast, was so revolutionary and full of, Of grace. See, this is what we're going to cover today. We're going to look at the first three sacrifices. We're going to look at the Ola, the Minha, and the Shamalim. Next week, uh, James is going to take us through the last two, the uh, Hatat, and the Ashram. And we're going to look at these five sacrifices because they are not what you may think they are. This book contains these first chapters, uh, these first five chapters contain all this information, all this priestly material about a sacrifice. And the word for sacrifice in Hebrew is korban, which means literally to draw near to. So think about what's being said here. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, this like priestly manual, you're being told, here is a God who wants to draw near to you. Here is a God who's giving instructions on how you not draw near to Him. You can almost read between the lines of this passage, these passages over and over again like, wow, it almost seems like God can't wait to get in human flesh and come here and draw near to us. It almost feels like that. So let's look at these. Um, let's look at these. The first three sacrifices, chapters 1 through 3, are voluntary sacrifices. They are not something you have to do. They're about gratitude and joy and peace and contentment. They're not requirements. Nobody's required to bring these. Um, they are the, the last two offerings that, that James is going to cover next week are about sin and guilt. And they describe, like what happens when you realize you've done wrong? How do you make things right? But the first three, you decide if you want to do this. You decide if you want to go out of overflow of joy and peace and contentment and grace and come to God. That's what's being described here. And Leviticus, so I just want you to hear this really loudly and really clearly, Leviticus doesn't start off with um, law, judgment, condemnation. It doesn't start off. It begins with, if anyone wants to come near God, if you want to come and offer an, an olah or a Minha or a Shemalim, here's how you come. Here's how you come near. Wouldn't that be great if you drew near? See, you can offer a burnt offering, a grain offering, a fellowship offering. See, let's think about this. Why would these first sacrifices be voluntary? Think about the history. We went over, we've gone over the history. The book right before this is the book of Exodus, which describes how God delivered these people from 400 years of slavery. Is it surprising then that people who've been delivered from 400 years of slavery by this God would suddenly be like, yeah, I sort of do want to draw near and in my joy and in my contentment and in my gratitude, I want to draw near to Him? Is that surprising? Let's look at these, these these first three. So the Ola, O-L-A-H. This is chapter 1. If you want to write them over chapter 1, 2, and 3, they break down really easily. So the first one, O-L-A-H, Ola. Ola is the Hebrew word for ascending. And what's described here is the, the person bringing the sacrifice would bring a whole animal And that entire animal would be burnt up, would be consumed on the altar, and the smoke rising up, ascending, would ascend up to God. And we're told over and over again, God is pleased. God is pleased. There are three different categories of ola here. So look at verse 1. Sorry, verse 3. The first one, chapter 1, verse 3, is from the herd. That's cattle. Then you go down, um, verse 10, from the flock. That's sheep or goats. And then finally... Verse 14 is birds. Uh, so here's what's going on. If, if you um, are pretty well off, you can bring a, a cow from your herd and offer that as an ola to God. If you are, you don't have that. If you're not as well off, you can go to your herd and find a goat and bring that in and offer that to, your, to, to God. And then if you are, you don't even have that, you're, you're very poor, you can bring in birds because anybody can get pigeons, right? Anybody can get those and bring those in to offer them to God. And what's, is, what's interesting about that, we've just talked about thousands of years of, of ancient Near Eastern context around them. And what is God saying that's different from all the nations here? He's saying the access to God here is everybody. Everybody come in. Everybody can have access. Everyone draw near. See, this is what's fascinating. Here is you already see income disparity in the Old Testament. <laughs> Isn't this wild? These are people who have just been freed from slavery. They grabbed whatever they could on the way out of Egypt, and already there is a spectrum. There are those who have a lot and those who have a little. And God says, "I don't care. I want to make a way for all." To come in, I want to make way for everyone to have access to draw near. Come and draw near to me. Everyone is invited. Everyone has the all-access pass. Everybody can come near. See, the this is the other thing. Um, they 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 bring the animal to the tent of meeting, and we read there about how the priest lays it out, and then and kills the animal, lays it out, and then it's consumed and. Here's the the message. The message of this is really clear. You want to come near God, follow this ritual. Draw near in this way, and it will be pleasing to the Lord. Did you hear that repeated in every instance? So if you bring a a cow from your herd and you burn it in this way, the, the refrain is, it will be pleasing to the Lord. If you bring a goat, and you burn it this way, it's pleasing to the Lord. If you bring a, a bird and you kill it in this way and burn it this way, it's pleasing to the Lord. What is the, what's the message? It's pleasing. The message is, see, compare again to the other nations where it's the, the, the glitch in the system. Remember, it's built on anxiety. I don't know where I stand with the God. This is a God who's saying, you can come and you will know exactly where you stand. There's no anxiety. Pleasing to the Lord. Pleasing to the Lord. This is, this is a God who's saying, I liberated from your enslavement. I brought you out of that. There's a whole new way of being human that I'm welcoming you into. You can come near in your joy and gratitude, in your expression of that joy and gratitude. The divine is pleased with you. I mean, who knew, right? Good news of Leviticus chapter 1. Let's look at the second offering. Um, this is the minha. Chapter 2, M-I-N-H-A-H, Minha, is how you say that. Um, incidentally, I used to get in trouble with my Hebrew professor because I took Spanish in college, and I said everything with a Spanish accent. So just sort of like give me a pass, okay? I'm a Hebrew. It's not very good. So um, the Minha, chapter 2, this is the grain offering. This is the grain offering. It is similar to the first offering, except for it's with grain. See how I did that? You got that, right? Um, so let me give you some context for this. Minha is a word that means gift. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, we read, Now you will go and bring the first fruits of your soil that you have given to me as a minha. Ehud, the judge, takes a minha, a gift, to the king of Moab. Um, in Judges 6, Gideon, as a sign of respect, prepares a minhah for God. Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and took flour and made bread as a minhah to the Lord. It just means gift. It's a gift. It's a gift to the Lord. And this, again, is an expression of joy and gratitude. God, you are so great. You have been so gracious. You have been so welcoming. Let's look at the ingredients of the minhah. I think this is very instructive. So, the ingredients the mean, huh? this is chapter 2. Again, um, chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, when anybody brings, uh, I'll read verse 1-2. When anybody brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be made of fine flour. That's the first ingredient here. Finest flour. Um, and we go, like, fine flour. Uh, okay. Right? You've got some at your house, probably. Um, fine flour, but In the Middle East at this time, in the Middle East, finest flour was not something that people had in abundance. It was incredibly scarce. The 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 flour that you would cook with on a regular basis was coarse and rough because it had to be ground by hand. Nobody's taking this to the mill down the street or buying it in a bag. Right? No. This is this has to be processed by hand at home. Finest flour required an incredible amount of work. It required a ton of, of labor intensive grinding and crushing for it to be really fine flour. That's the first ingredient. Um, the second ingredient was oil. Oil in the Bible is always given, is symbolic of um, someone who's got God's presence on them, someone with whom God is pleased. So, for example, in 1 Samuel, God comes and speaks to the the prophet Samuel, who is grieving at that point because the king of Israel is a bum, and his administration has been a complete train wreck. And he's like, what do we do? And, and he's grieving over this, and God comes to him and says, go and fill your horn with oil, like a like picture, an animal horn that's hollow inside. Fill it with oil. Go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, and there you will anoint one of his sons to be the next king. And putting the oil on David's head was a sign. This is the person I'm choosing. This is the person. God's presence is with this person. You put oil to show God's blessing and His presence. But again, how do you get oil in the ancient Near East? Oil comes from olives. What do you have to do to olives to get them to render oil? You have to crush it. You have to press them. For for them to give their gift, they have to be crushed. Um, Third ingredient we read here, the third ingredient uh, in the the minha is is, uh, the, the frankincense. That's here in, in verse 3. And frankincense, again, is, a, is um, the way that you obtain frankincense, you get it to give off its aroma, is by crushing it. That's how it gives off the smell that comes with it. So can you see something here? Can you see why the early followers of Jesus, after watching their rabbi be beaten, be crushed, would look in these kind of sacrifices and go, crushed. Crushed in order to give it its fruit. See, do you hear the repeated pattern in that? Broken. The priest then would, uh, the, the grain offering was, was then seasoned with salt. Salt was always used as um, in whenever two people would make a covenant with one another. Salt was a sign of the covenant. And so the sign of the covenant is put on the Minha. And again, symbolizing God, this is, this is how you draw near God. This is how you come near Him. The priest then would take the flour and the oil and the incense and burn them on the altar. And what do we read again? What's the, the refrain? It is what? Pleasing to the Lord. Again, God is, is He's happy to draw near. He's happy for you to draw near. See again, this just needs to be said. Uh, this is the opposite of the sacrificial system of the pagans. This is a God who is like who's like I, I I'm the God of the underdog. I'm the God who hears the cries of my people. I am the God who is all about come coming near and wanting you to come near. No Leviticus Leviticus is not um, the anxiety ridden manual. This is the anti-anxiety manual. You know where you stand. And followers of Jesus look at this and are like, I know where I stand. He was crushed for me. He was crushed so I could have access. Third one. Look at the third uh, sacrifice here. This is chapter 3. This is the Shelemim. So S-H-E-L-A-M-I-M. Shelemim. This is chapter 3, the third sacrifice. The Shalomim, was the sacred meal of God. And you can hear this. Uh, You you may not know any Hebrew, uh, but maybe the word shalom. But you can hear this. Shalomim, Shalom. Shalom. Right? Peace. A peace meal. A peace feast. A peace dinner with my God. That's what's being described here in chapter 3. This is all about communion with God. This is about peace and wholeness and well-being and everything's right between us and all things that were wrong have been made right. In the ancient Near East, this was the goal. This was hands down the goal of life is to have a meal with the gods. And you see this just being displayed for us in like this beautiful picture here. Again, we don't have a God who needs to be fed. This isn't, I come and offer what I have and God eats some of it and I eat the other. No, we have a God, this is what's proclaimed over and over in the Old Testament. We have a God who is the source of all things, who doesn't need anything, who's never hungry, who's never tired, who comes and he is the provider of the feast and you come bring part of the feast and you just enjoy it in his presence. That's what's being shown here. See, the the purpose of the shalomim. is, was to reaffirm, me and God, we are at peace with each other. We have fellowship. We enjoy being together. We enjoy each other. See, um, wow, who knew, right? The gospel in Leviticus, let's just say this for the joy of saying it one more time, okay? This book doesn't start with a long list of commands. This is an angry God that you're trying to appease, this begins with clear, straightforward instructions on how to enact these rituals that remind you, that give expression to your joy, expression to your gratitude, expression to your contentment, expression to your peace, and remind you this is how you're brought near to the divine. This is how you can enjoy His presence. This is how you can be with Him. This is how you, is how you celebrate wholeness and vitality. See, can you see how this would have been so radical and so beautiful you surround, know, surrounding cultures where people were sacrificing their children. I mean, do you have any idea how jarring and revolutionary this is? So, as we read these chapters in Leviticus, and I want to encourage you, you have a rainy afternoon with nothing to do, go back and read these. Does this feel primitive and barbaric to you? Does this feel like a, a, a God who's angry and trying, and therefore we, we've got to like, Um, get it right? Or is this a God who draws near and offers reconciliation, and it's about trusting Him? It's about letting go of your anxiety in His presence and trusting. He is the provider of all, including full access to Himself. Full access. So here's my final point for today. My final point on Leviticus is don't bottom line Leviticus. Um, Christians do this all the time. Sometimes in our desire to be really, um, uh, like, understand the Bible, we make summary statements that are not always that helpful, and we can be simplistic with the Old Testament instead of simple. Do you know the difference between those two words? Simple is beautiful. Simplistic is dumbing things down. Simplistic is, uh, and let me, let me show my cards, simplistic is the statement, Jesus fulfills the sacrifice. Um, which one? One of the beautiful things about Leviticus is there are all these sacrifices. There's a variety, and each one of them has things to tell you about your God. And of course, of course, we believe Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system. In, in Hebrews chapter 9, we read about Jesus who, um, but the one sacrifice of Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament sacrifices, which by themselves could not save anyone. But the diversity of all these sacrifices shows us that they're all different aspects and angles and ways of looking at what Jesus provided for us. This is like a prism. You know, when you look at a prism in the light, it takes what is regular light and explodes it into all the parts of the rainbow. And I want to encourage you, like, when we look at this, We look at this Old Testament sacrificial system. What it has for us is to refract the light and all these like different colors for us to see. Wow! Jesus provides fellowship. Jesus provides all access. Jesus satisfies for my sins. Jesus reconciles me to God. Jesus brings peace. Jesus brings forgiveness. It's all these things. It's not a bottom line. It's not simplistic. So here's my question to you, coming from this passage this morning. Are you overwhelmed by the grace of God for you as a sinner? Are you tired of looking at Jesus and what he's given for you in his sacrifice? Have you sort of made it so simple as to be boring? Are you enjoying and celebrating and entering into all the access of a God who says, I want to be near you. I've gone to great lengths to be near you and invited you to be near to me. Are you celebrating that? Are you embracing that? Are you living in the fullness of that? I find that a lot of Christians have sort of stopped engaging their hearts with those things. Leviticus says, come in. There's more, way more than you thought. There's more for your heart to treasure and ponder and to enjoy of this God. I want to close with this. Um, Many of you probably have heard of Eugene Peterson. He's a, uh, he was a pastor in the kind of larger D.C. area and then has written a bunch of books. He, he's the author of the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. And he describes this story about growing up, up in Montana in a very rural kind of farm setting. And when he was a little boy, he would often walk across the meadow behind his house to the adjoining property and watch his neighbor, a guy named... Um, Leonard Storm, on his tractor working in the fields, and he wanted nothing more than to ride on the tractor. His family didn't have one. He wanted to ride on the tractor. So he's, he's five years old this one day, and he's standing beside the barbed wire fence, watching over the fence uh, his neighbor, his neighbor um, Leonard Storm, about 100 yards away in his tractor going back and forth. And Storm stops the tractor, sees the little boy, five years old, stands up on the tractor and starts yelling at him and going like this. And he starts yelling at him, and Eugene Peterson, who had never seen anything like this before, this gigantic, burly man who's screaming at him through the wind, so he can't understand what he's saying, making this gigantic gesture at him, gets scared and runs off. Well, his neighbor, uh, goes to the same church. So, so that Sunday, Winter Storm pulls aside Eugene Peterson and says, little Petey, why didn't you come to me on the tractor when I waved to you? And he's, he admits he was scared. He thought he was mad at him. He thought he was sending him away. And he says, well, little Petey, how do you tell people to come here? And he goes like, like this. <laughs> right? Wiggling his finger. Not the giant windmill motion, come here. And he ran off because he misunderstood the sign of invitation. This morning, look, don't be scared by this book. Don't be scared away by the welcome gesture from God coming in maybe a little different form than we're used to. The invitation gesture, the the windmill arms of, of God in this book. This seems kind of, wow, this is kind of gross and weird and I don't know what to do with this. God is doing the same thing you do. He's inviting you in. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, shalom.